I'm Doug Storm, producer and host of Interchange. Because we've got so much great archival content in our digital vault, and because sometimes you just need a prompt to discover it. Today we're sharing a show produced as part of our 2013 summer series, The Custom House. This is a conversation with Christoph Ermscher about his book, Louis Agassiz, Creator of American Science. I hope you enjoy the program. And remember, more great content like this is available at wfhb.org slash news slash interchange. Welcome to the Custom House, inspecting literary texts of all shapes and sizes from any point in origin to discover just what it is they are trying to import into our consciousness. We discuss literature as a thinking process, expanding interpretations of the written word, and exposing social frameworks in order to learn about ourselves and strengthen our community. This week on the Custom House... When Agassiz talks about man, he really means scientists, because in his conception of science, everybody should be a scientist. A scientist is the one who gets the closest to God. A scientist is the one who can explain the universe to us. This week, we'll be speaking with biographer Christoph Ermscher about the legacy of Louis Agassiz, one of the most influential men in the development of the practice of science in America. In a speech to the Naturalist Society in 1897 to honor Louis Agassiz, William James, who was a student of Agassiz's as well as one of his assistants on an expedition to Brazil, opens this way. On this social occasion, it has seemed that what Agassiz stood for in the way of character and influence is the more fitting thing to commemorate, and to that agreeable task I have been called. He made an impression that was unrivaled. He left a sort of popular myth, the Agassiz legend, as one might say behind him in the air, about us. But to students of this particular past, the charge of racism seems destined to relegate Louis Agassiz to an unpleasant footnote in America's intellectual history, even more than the triumph of Darwin's ideas overshadow Agassiz as a scientist. Both cast a dark cloud on the legacy of Louis Agassiz, dampening that unrivaled impression that James asserts. You're listening to WFHB Firehouse Radio. I'm Doug Storm, and you're joining us in the Custom House. It's that mythic air that we'll inspect today with our guest, Christoph Ermscher, a professor in the English department at Indiana University, who has written a book that I think exemplifies James' statement. It's called Louis Agassiz, Creator of American Science, which was published this February by Halton Mifflin Harcourt. Welcome to the Custom House, Christoph. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, Louis Agassiz comes to an America that is moving toward civil war. Give us a sense of who he is at the time. He's nearly 40, I believe, and how he introduces himself and his ideas into the context of this slave nation. Louis Agassiz came to uh, the United States in 1846 from his native Switzerland. He was a well-established scientist at the time, uh, internationally known, uh, but not with an academic appointment to match his reputation. He was teaching at a small college in Switzerland. Uh, His life had essentially gone up in flames, his marriage had collapsed, and uh, thanks to his mentor, Alexander von Humboldt, he did get the chance to travel to the United States to expand his horizon, to do field work, and so forth, and he never left. Um, When he came to um, America, the ostensible reason for uh, the visit were the Lowell Lectures, a very famous series of distinguished lectures, uh, and he came to Boston 
to talk about natural history to popular audiences who flock to his lectures. And um, what he did in those lectures was give a sense of who he was as a field worker, as a scientist, as somebody who had studied fossil fish, who had studied glaciers, who had essentially come up with explanations for the universe. Uh, he was not a modest man. Uh, he felt that he was competent to weigh in on all sorts of issues. And uh, some of um, Agassiz's future troubles uh, became visible in this first ser series of lectures. Uh, he uh, started talking just a little bit about uh, humankind, which had not been of great interest to him before. Um, he felt that, uh, as he said in one of those lectures, that the Bible, the creation story, Genesis, did not apply uh, to humans of other races, only to whites. And uh, a member in the audience, a member, of the, a member of the audience, Asa Gray, a professor of botany at Harvard, already felt that this was taking things in a new direction. Mm. And uh, that was the beginning of what we now refer to as polygenism, the theory that uh, human races have been created at different times and for different purposes. And um, uh, while Agassiz really did not make this the central focus of his, uh, of his science in the United States um, after he was offered a professorship at Harvard, race just fit very neatly into a scientific theory that really did not allow for much change, much travel, uh, much um, development, really. Uh, you speak uh, actually to the point uh, regarding the northern white Christian abolitionist position in this book with regard to a commission headed by Samuel Gridley Howe, who sought out Agassiz to address how emancipation was to be managed. The series of letters written by Agassiz to Howe seems pretty telling. Yes, and these letters have overshadowed his reputation to this day. Um, they weren't really published uh, in his uh, lifetime, uh, but um, Agassiz's recommendations uh, as to what one should do with the ex-slaves um, made it into the official report of the Freedmen's Inquiry Commission, of which Howe was a member. Um, what this commission did was essentially um, ask experts, as well as people with political office, doctors, uh, they wrote to superintendents of mental asylums, for instance, they asked them for their opinion on race and what would actually be the best approach to take to dealing with the massive influx of freed slaves looking for work, looking for a place in society and so forth. And um, one of the things that's really a little difficult to understand from a modern perspective is that being a, an abolitionist did not necessarily mean that you weren't a racist. Mm. Uh, Samuel Gridley Howe was a, was a very courageous man. He was a man who at one point had to remove himself to Canada because there was a prize on his head. Um, he fervently believed that slavery should end, and Agassiz agreed with him. Uh, but he also believed that a situation needed to be created where um, the new, newly freed black population would not simply merge into white American society. Um, Abraham Lincoln, um, in a famous statement when he was campaigning for uh, the Senate uh, in Illinois said, just because I don't want a Negro to be my slave does not mean I want her for a wife. Mm -hmm. uh, so basically the, the idea was we free them but we don't want them as our neighbors. And Agassiz was just the man to underwrite this. His polygenous theory essentially allowed him to say that there's an obstacle 
to racial mixing as a natural obstacle, a mm. scientific obstacle to, to, to racial mixing. And we, we want those slaves free, but we want them removed to a place where they cannot be anywhere near us. And mm. that's precisely what Howe wanted to hear. And in a series of letters, Agassiz would, you know, trot out various um, um, outlandish notions as to... Uh, what the reason for the current American malaise was, one of his uh, more lurid explanations was that um, racial mixing had come come about because of this easy availability of black women to southern mm. white men. And if you if you take them away, if you segregate the races, that's not going to happen mm. anymore. Well, there's a sense, too, I think, in your book that uh, this uh, the polygenism is, is this kind of a development in place um, that uh, you would assume then that the the... Uh, African slave should be in Africa. That yes, this is part of yeah. the the science behind it as well at the time. Right. For Agassiz, the South was just fine because they, <laughs> okay. it's the climate that they were adapted okay. for, as he argued. And if you keep them there, if you let them do the work, um, mm-hmm. that will take care of a mm. potentially difficult situation. Of course, um, there are many, many holes in this theory. One of them would be that uh, if you agree to free the slaves, of course, and Agassiz and how were agreed on that, you you have to give them some political right to represent themselves and how that would work uh, with segregation is something he never addressed. And, you know, and it has been, as has been pointed out um, by others, uh, by people other than me, um, the whole anti-miscegenationist stance was based on the notion that the mulatto, the product of racial mixing, was weak and feebled, mm-hmm. um, an inferior product. Mm-hmm. And why you had to be afraid of uh, racial mixing then uh, mm-hmm. is a logical mistake that Agassiz, for all his intelligence, apparently was never able to address. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some... If, if the whole story weren't so tragic, so sad, um, there are some hilarious parts of it, too. They would write to uh, people all over the country. The Freedmen's Inquiry Commission asked them for their opinion. And um, the superintendent is – the superintendents of mental asylums, for instance, would say – I really can't confirm that. I've I've never really had any right. <laughs> mixed race people among my yeah. patients. Well, that was that was a, a really interesting point in the book was that the people who are actually doing the work were very uh, forthright, very honest, very right. very firm in their stance that I yeah. I can't make that extrapolation from the data I have. Absolutely, yeah. and the uh, and the commission ignored that mm-hmm. for the most part. Uh, there's a conversation. Uh, between Frederick Law Olmsted and members of the commission, they write to him and they ask him to check insurance records and mm. see if um, the insurance providers in the South, because you could insure your slaves, actually made a difference between mulattoes and pure blacks, so to speak. And, Ol- uh, and Olmsted writes back and says, no, I not even the slaveholders believe there's a difference. Mm. So what do, you, what do you want to do with that? I just don't agree with you. But Agassiz, because of his public stature, was able to provide um, those abolitionists with just the kind of underwriting uh, they needed for their um, recommendations. Um, okay, so then at, at the time we've got a lot of things happening in in, in the cultural milieu as well as the, the scientific milieu. Lot, lots of things are, are going on. Polygenism's in the air. Uh, a lot of this seems attached to a, a, a biblical background as well. And, and also evolution has, has been kicking around for some, some time as well. Um, can you place Agassiz within that particular context with evolution, Darwin, things of that nature? Right. Mm-hmm. 
um, after he had finished his studies um, in, in the University of Munich, where he got his doctorate in, in natural history, uh, he went to Paris to study with Georges Cuvier, who was really the most famous naturalist at the time that he could be working with, apart from Alexander von Humboldt, who then became his mentor. Uh, but a man he would have encountered at the time in Paris was Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, uh, who opposed Cuvier and argued that um, species were not unalterable, that they would adapt um, because of changes in the environment or because of new needs that had arisen and would develop greater complexity. Mm. And um, Agassiz sided with Cuvier against Lamarck. And uh, the interesting thing is that Agassiz himself did not reject development. He believed in something called the threefold parallelism, essentially the idea that the various stages of individual growth in the embryo, for instance, the different phases that the embryo goes through, reflect the stages in the development of the tribe or the taxon related mm. species so that lower species would make an appearance in the embryonic development of a higher species. And on the third level, this entire sort of series of changes would also reflect the history of Earth, the history of life on Earth. So essentially three parallels, the individual, the taxon, and uh, the history of nature. And they were all related. And development would happen within those carefully compartmentalized areas. And uh, Darwin seized on that in The Origin of Species and was uh, remarked somewhat ironically, uh, Agassiz is giving me the best proof of evolution. Uh, but the truth is that Agassiz could not contemplate any change happening that was not preordained, that was mm -hmm. not part of a divine plan where everything stays the way it ought to be. Hence is racism too, because ra racial mixing, uh, races, races sort of intermingling would go against this notion mm -hmm. that nothing ever moves. And, um, and Agassiz held on to that. Uh, his, he was convinced that God's mind had created nature the way we see it, that any controlled development that is happening is planned by God and that it's our purpose as scientists to understand that, to approximate God's plan in the intellectual constructions mm -hmm. we as scientists make of mm -hmm. the world that we see around us. Well, it seems like he pushes a little further, and I think you say in, in the book too, in the sense that the, the mind of, of man is in a sense the mind of God in that, in that way then. Yes, exactly. And uh, for Agassiz, uh, uh, it's essentially that passage, passage from uh, Corinthians, and now we see but through a glass mm -hmm. darkly, but soon we shall see all. Mm -hmm. um, Agassiz is a completely teleological conception of science. Um, the truth is there. If we haven't seen it, it's because we haven't tried hard mm. enough, because we haven't worked hard enough, because we haven't done enough in order to get mm. there. But science is a progressive thing. If you have enough money, if you have enough resources, if you have enough people doing it, we will all get to a point where our mind is like the mind mm. of God. And that's the message that the transcendentalists were mm. happy to right. hear. You know, somebody like Emerson who believed in the divinity of the human mind, right. Agassiz was giving him all the cues that he needed. Mm. The famous transparent eyeball passage mm -hmm. where you merge where you, the eye and the eye, both the mm -hmm. organ and the, the self, merge with something larger than the self. But that larger self is actually the self as it ought to be. Mm -hmm. it's, it, it, it takes us out of ourselves. It makes us into something that is larger than any, any individual defined by, as Emerson says in nature, by friends, relatives, and so mm -hmm. forth. It all becomes irrelevant, essentially. Mm -hmm. And Agassiz is providing the scientific language 
to make this experience um, uh, palatable for, um, excuse me, uh, palpable for uh, the transcendentalists. Mm. Well, uh, it seems, too, that we've set up uh, with these dichotomies in science also um, a kind of north and south of uh, uh, of this particular equation between Darwin and Agassiz. Uh, this, uh, you do a really interesting job and, and a great job in the book uh, demonstrating this uh, difference between Agassiz and Darwin in the chapter on barnacles and, and jellyfish. Uh, how do these particular sea creatures help us understand those differences? Agassiz was completely obsessed with jellyfish, and that became a major preoccupation for him um, after he'd uh, come to the United States, where he actually could observe jellyfish uh, in the ocean, in the water. He set up a seaside laboratory where he could um, be as close to these creatures as, as, as he wanted to be. Um, he, had, he knew a lot about barnacles. He had, in fact, um, initiated Darwin's barnacle research, um, a multiple-year study of barnacles that uh, Darwin needed because um, as he was developing his theory of evolution, he needed to have an in-depth study of one particular uh, family of organisms that, that he had to, um, you know, spend time with. And barnacles are these, you know, scrappy, kind of ubiquitous uh, creatures that you know, whose sexual lives are absolutely breathtaking, as Darwin found out. And and he would look at the diversity of the uh, arrangements that barnacles um, have made in in order to cope uh, with a struggle for life, so to speak. And one of the more outlandish examples that he shares with Darwin in the letter, uh, he talks about um, particular species of barnacle where males had underdeveloped sexual organs. And where essentially some of some of them would morph into these detachable penises. The only mm. purpose was uh, to add in the business of procreation, and then they would die. Agassiz's jellyfish were these um, almost ephemeral, um, uh, mysterious creatures that were very, very different from these barnacles, and uh, they became um, for him uh, symbols of the spirituality of nature, uh, basically, sort of the marriage of matter and spirit. Uh, jellyfish um, are very hard to keep outside of, their, outside of the natural element, outside the water. Agassiz, in order to get close to them, would sometimes plunge his microscope into the water, um, would, um, you know, try to uh, be as, 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 as close to them as he could only make it. And um, for me in this chapter, that helps me set up a contrast between uh, Darwin's uh, uh, very kind of meticulous research and Agassiz's almost poetic way mm. of dealing with science, um, uh, his, um, his emphasis on the importance of seeing because jellyfish, um, very hard to visualize. Um, is seeing is very, very central uh, to Agassiz's um, um, conception of science. Uh, he would always talk about his taking out his students to the beach, uh, close to the water, to catch nature in the act, as he as he would call it. Yeah, I think you bring in Melville a few times in, in the book, and one of them is in, in this particular place. Um, it is, I think, Ishmael who, who speaks to the fact that you can't see the whale uh, even in its element, you're still not going to see it. You have to see it in its element, but you're not going to be able to really see it whole. Right. And it seems like the jellyfish is kind of a, a Moby Dick of, of Agass Agassiz's life in a sense, you know, to try to see that thing whole, uh, but yeah. you can't pull it out of the water and see it. There's something very predatory about Agassiz's seeing as well. That, yeah. Uh, yeah. I was going to ask you that too in terms, because it, it, it definitely follows into the the idea of the acquisitive 
scientist. Right. He's yes. not only yeah. Yeah. Uh, not, not only noting things yes. down. He's, exactly. he's keeping yes. them, holding yeah. them, trying to discover them in his in his place to understand them through his mind. And that that goes really well with his uh, goal to develop this great museum where people can come and and see the same kinds of things that he sees. Yes, uh, and there's there's also a, a you know kind of a contradiction in all that because if you believe in um, watching nature in the act in seeing creatures live, why would you want a museum? Mm-hmm. Um, the museum was a part of Agassiz's effort to educate the public and to make the results of his collecting available to everybody. But the irony was, uh, because of that central contradiction in his science, the museum was never done. He kept collecting, he kept filling it with specimens, and it became um, sort of public embarrassment, really, because um, you you couldn't really see things because there were so many boxes. Um, mm. There were so many specimens around. The assistants were complaining that alcohol was leaking out of jars and so forth. And Agassiz himself, in one of the more comical statements that he made about his own work, said, my museum overflows from garret to cellar, he complained. He just could not ever accept finality. Mm. Um, that was sort of the flip side of this teleological concept that he had. Mm. On the way to the truth, you need to do so much. When do you know you're done? <laughs> right. You know, it's the... It, it, Continues to strike me as as amusing, although although you you it is sad in some sense too. The museum is a book, but the museum is this idea that you have you have this thing that you will see from beginning to end. You can even chart it out. It starts here, it goes here, it goes there, and then it has to end, and it has to end because it ends with you, man, the viewer, the right. see, the seer in this yeah. equation. Yeah. Yeah. And that is something that. Um, you know, Melville had left behind. Uh, coming back to Moby Dick, you know, one of the most chilling passages uh, towards the end of the novel comes when Starbuck turns to Ahab, and it's way too late in the book, of course. Starbuck should have intervened way earlier, but he never did. He turns to Ahab and says, he seeks thee not, referring to Moby Dick. Moby Dick has no interest in you. He does not want to be seen. He does not care about you. He just wants to be left alone. And that notion that nature is not for us, has not been created for our, for our benefit, is something that is not available to Agassiz. Yeah, this is the direct dichotomy you point out in yeah. terms of Darwin, too. Yeah. And Darwin says the same thing. This yes. is not for yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, th- that's, that's just, like you say, chilling and chilling within Moby Dick, too, because that's the, right. the key contention of the book and Melville's contention And as that's well. a step that Emerson is not ready to make mm-hmm. either. But, um, you know, in nature, we referred to nature earlier. Emerson talks about the ant that's chiefly interesting because of the ray of relation mm-hmm. that extends from it to us. Mm-hmm. When we look at nature in the Amazonian conception, we see ourselves reflected mm-hmm. to us, right? Yeah. Thoreau um, does a very, very different thing in Walden. You know, where he's, he's, he, there's one passage where he's looking at the ant and imagines somebody else looking at him as he's looking at the ant, mm-hmm. which is a way of distancing mm-hmm. uh, the subject um, of, of admitting that we might not be the focal point of what is happening around us. Not available to Emerson, not available to Agassiz. Yeah, it's, it's what I, I think that we see as a, a dangerous vanity, and it's one that we, I think, we, you know, it's, it's in Narcissus, you know, it's the idea exactly. that you, you're seeing yourself reflected back to you. What you call Agassiz's vanity uh, is really based uh, on a conception of the importance of science to society. And um, there's an unpublished little text by Agassiz that actually did not make it into the book um, because 
there's so much material in it already, but it's actually quite a quite a telling little text. It's one of the very, very few essays by Agassiz in which he does not address a scientific issue. He's talking about Psalm 8, lines 3 to 4. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And Agassiz takes this passage from the psalm and does something very, very different with it. He objects to it, essentially. And he says the psalmist had no idea of science. Science has explained the heavens to us. Science has explained the stars and the moon and everything to us. There are fewer mysteries left in our day than there were at the time of King David, basically. And uh, in order to flesh that out, uh, he talks about one particular scientist, Urbain Le Verrier, a French scientist who in 1846 had predicted the existence of Neptune, purely based on mathematics at first, on calculations that he made. And then he went and looked through the tube, as Agassiz says, and indeed he saw the spot, twinkling little star, but so much larger than Earth even. And his mind had predicted the existence of that particular star. Hmm. And, 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 and for Agassiz, that is proof of how there's an adequation between our mind and the universe, which is the mind of God. And our mind is, and this is the conclusion that he draws, the mind of God. He's basically saying... That approximation is something that we, we have to work towards. Scientists already know that. When Agassiz talks about man, he really means scientist because in his conception of science, everybody should be a scientist. Mm. A scientist is the one who gets the closest to God. A scientist is the one who can explain the universe to us. And there's an interesting little aspect of, of, of that too, bi biographically speaking. Agassiz was the son of a minister, of a Protestant minister. Uh, Calvinism was in his DNA, basically. I mean, Calvin writes about the same psalm, he emphasizes how humans are unworthy creatures. They're worms squirming in the dust, basically. And God's grace, which is what the psalm, according to Calvin, talks about, is given to us for no particular reason other than God's infinite wisdom, right? Mm -hmm. And for Agassiz, that's a completely unacceptable explanation uh, because the human mind is divine. Mm. It has a right to see those things and we just need to unleash it to us. And death, interestingly enough for Agassiz, is just an inconvenient interruption. <laughs> um, the human mind survives death mm. because it is externalized in nature mm. around us. Well, those you, you again bring up a couple of things that, that continue to, I think, um, be brought back in here, uh, kind of an arguing with an existing book. You know, you, you point out that he's he's actually disagreeing in a sense with the psalmist. Uh, you know, this is yeah. King David, and yeah. and Agassiz in a sense is saying that's not right, King David. <laughs> you know, uh, so which is an interesting perspective for a man we we think of as very conservative, uh, uh, really involved in creation, right. uh, and then to have him be constantly arguing with things that are. Um, settled in some sense in that in a in a religious sense right yeah. and for for some of his contemporaries he was he was actually progressive it's mm. hard for us to imagine that but there was deep suspicion um, of him in boston he did not go to church on sundays mm. he was not a church going man as his contemporaries said his religion did not fit into any uh, 
um, preconceived notions, mm-hmm. even the Unitarian mold uh, did not accommodate Darwin, and um, there was a great deal of immodesty in his approach. Yeah. Um, to yeah. you know, essentially say we we can be at some point at the level that God was on yeah. when He created the world. God put in no in motion a plan. Mm-hmm. That's for us to figure out, and we can do it. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it is again a, another parallel to Moby Dick, with uh, with Agassiz being a kind of Ahab of this yes. of the search, yeah. you know, for for God in a sense. Right. You know, that yeah. Moby Dick yeah. is God yeah. for for Ahab in this in this story. Yeah, and you know how the novel ends. You know, with uh, <laughs> yeah. Ahab just uh, being carried away, yeah. caught in his own harpoon. Yeah, that's that's exactly what it seems happens here yeah. as well. Um, what one thing that that really struck me about the book too, and that I liked so much, was that it's it's a biography of a culture as much as it is a biography of a man. In a sense that there is a a jockeying for supremacy. Um, of of the vision of nature, and mm-hmm. um, I, you know, it's one of those things when we bring in Lincoln here too. And this is that time period, and it reminded me of that Doris Kearns Goodwin book, uh, Team of Rivals. And there is that sense here too of of the various scientists trying to do their thing or do it their way, and kind of talking behind each other's backs all the time. They're, the letters to from Asa Gray to Darwin. Yes, and um, the one person in this kind of rivalry that had the last laugh was Asa Gray, who was a botanist. Um, I've mentioned him before at Harvard University. He was a man Agassiz completely underestimated. Um, He was a Presbyterian. He was a very conservative man, religiously speaking. He was a guy who didn't work on Sundays, who um, didn't like to travel, was not a cosmopolitan. Um, He liked to read Walter Scott and uh, definitely didn't have any of that kind of urbaneness that uh, was Agassiz's hallmark. And uh, Gray was Darwin's supporter in the U.S. Uh, He ushered the first edition of Origin of Species into print. Uh, He had recognized from the beginning how important uh, Darwin's uh, work was, and he added his own little bit to it, um, looking at plant distribution and so forth. And uh, Gray, in a very quiet, unassuming way, brought Agassiz down, and he did so with a flourish um, in public appearances, uh, behind the scenes, um, there was a great uh, uh, brouhaha at the meeting of in the American Academy of uh, Sciences where Gray essentially had his way uh, in very important elections. Uh, Agassiz lost, and there's a story of a confrontation on a train uh, back home from New Haven where the meeting was, where Gray uh, was confronted by Agassiz. We are not quite sure what happened, but um, there's a note from Gray's wife afterwards uh, where he she asserts that Mr. Agassiz was not a gentleman. Uh, so apparently it said some very unsavory things to Gray. Uh, but Gray was the guy who became Agassiz's um, nemesis mm. and um, and Agassiz was not prepared for that. He was so involved in his institutional work in creating the museum and gathering assistance around him uh, in being a public pontificator on race, on all sorts of things that he didn't notice uh, that Gray had quietly undermined his position and Gray would write these very funny letters uh, to Darwin back in England and uh, reporting on how much damage he'd already done. In one letter, he says that Agassiz was walking around Cambridge like a well-cudgeled dog, and he was referring to the effects of the own public beatings he'd given him. He did seem amazingly uh, unaware or didn't respond to it in a way that you would think. Was he just unaware of of everything that was happening around him? I think he'd come so far in such a short period of time 
that the idea that somebody who'd gone to a medical school somewhere in upstate New York and he was spending his time in a, in a, in, in a herbarium looking at dried plants, mm -hmm. uh, the idea that somebody like Gray could be dangerous to him had never really occurred to him. Mm -hmm. And he was backed up by the Harvard hierarchy. Uh, he was backed up by Harvard presidents. Agassiz was an enormous asset to Harvard. He never thought that anything could happen to him. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, so he didn't even notice how his assistants around him gradually began to embrace Darwinism, how his own son was corresponding with Darwin, mm -hmm. with Alexander, who took over uh, the uh, museum after Agassiz's death, um, how his whole position was crumbling. Mm -hmm. And he went to his grave still believing in his own superiority over other scientists. Well, you make this point a few times, too, that the idea that Agassiz is kind of at the top of the, 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 the pyramid of the CEO and he's got people working under him, working and working and working, slave, slaving, you know, cataloging, cataloging, right. yeah. and people doing some, some fantastic work who are seeing other things, who are, are putting different science ideas together around him. And there are two, two in particular to talk about. Uh, uh, Henry James Clark is one, and, and I'm forgetting the other one. Verrill, was that yeah, the other one? Right, two, yeah. two guys you, you bring out in the book really to show a difference of, of temperament to people who worked with Agassiz. And uh, Clark is a, is a very sad story, but a, a fascinating one as well. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Uh, Clark had originally come to Cambridge to study with Gray and um, wanted to be a botanist, really, but Agassiz was so attractive. He Agassiz, throughout his career in America, had an incredible talent for finding the right people, for getting these enormously gifted people working for him, the best illustrators, the best assistants, and Clark was just enormously talented. Um, Agassiz himself referred to Clark as the best microscopist of mm. his time. Uh, he was a guy who could look through a microscope and draw accurate images of what he saw as he was looking. Um, just a prodigiously talented man, and Agassiz was not willing to grant Clark what he needed individuality, the right to pursue his own work. Uh, for Agassiz, it was quite simple. You worked for him, you worked in his museum, you, you used his equipment, you used his, the material that he provided. The results of your work were Agassiz's. Mm. It belonged to him. And Clark could not stand it. At some point, Clark tries to get out. He goes to Europe on the grand tour because he hopes that will make him um, a, a better rounded person, I guess. And wherever he goes in Europe, Agassiz's name is everywhere. He finds it in Switzerland, in the mountains, scratched into rock. There's Agassiz's name. He goes to the Jardin des Plantes in Paris, and there's Agassiz's name on the labels of the specimens. He goes to Germany, talks to naturalists there, and they always ask him about Agassiz, and they have a book for Agassiz or a specimen he's supposed to bring home. Only Darwin doesn't want to see Clark, uh, Agassiz's man, as he says. And Clark comes home, and the situation is still the same. Agassiz's not paying him. He still expects him to, to work for him. Agassiz's constantly broke because his money always goes into collecting efforts, right? right? And Clark is not willing to continue that relationship anymore. There's a breakup, and Clark does something extraordinary, something no one had done. He, uh, he stands up against Agassiz. He goes to the Harvard president. He complains about him. Uh, he wants to have his rights asserted, and unfortunately, he doesn't have the position to right, get it. Right, right, right. I was just thinking the same thing in terms of you know suing for his own uh, intellectual property in exactly. a sense. He publishes a broadside where he points out exactly what images he's done, what passages he's written, what research is his own. And a very poignant part of the story is that Clark does something 
or gets in, gets involved in something that is discredited as science, but both by Agassiz and Darwin, it's the theory of spontaneous generation that life life can arise from nowhere. Um, it's sort of a fantasy that Clark has. You know, you don't need no Agassiz to become <laughs> Clark, right? You can come out of a vacuum, and he gets really involved with it. Um, after he has to leave Harvard. Um, he has a variety of um, appointments, all of them very unspectacular. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he continues to do very good research. And you will see his name mentioned, um, actually, in connection with the Human Genome Project, mm-hmm. um, because Clark d- did a very good description of the multicellular uh, structure of sponges, um, mm-hmm. Marine sponges, um, and uh, people are interested in that today. How do you go from single-celled organisms to multicellular ones? And that's something that Clark was attuned to. Um, but Agassiz was not able to foster the talent that he'd attracted. Mm-hmm. People who studied with him went on to great positions. Um, they went on to influence the landscape of American science even after his death. Well, but they had to do so after discarding most of the ideological baggage uh, that Agassiz had left them with. Well, you, you did mention fostering there and, and the idea that, that a couple of things, Agassiz as performer, Agassiz as charmer, Agassiz as almost a big top leader. Right. Um, but what, what comes out of that too, I think, and you point towards the end of the book, is that what springs out of that is, is its own kind of industry of understanding science, of writing about science, of, of sharing that science with the public. This was the idea behind the museum as well. And it seems to be the, the thing you're pushing towards in the book is, is a, um, not necessarily an apologetics of the racism, of the errors, but to say, look, this guy brought science to the mainstream. And he was he was that sort of progenitor of of popular science. Uh, you you bring up Elizabeth uh, near the end of the book as uh, you end really with Elizabeth and um, she really had become a force of her own. She'd really become something and and tried to take her understanding of of her husband's work and share it in a way that I think you pointed out Agassiz didn't really do or wasn't able to foster. She seems to have yeah. fostered a generation. There's several things that are happening in in her writing about Agassiz, but also her own science writing, the letters that she writes about uh, being with Agassiz on Agassiz's expeditions. Um, Something happens to Agassiz's image. His obsessiveness becomes often the source of jokes for Elizabeth Agassiz. It's uh, something that is... Um, strange to her, strange to the reader. At a, at a very pivotal point, uh, when Agassiz, towards the end of his life, undertakes an expedition that actually goes to the Galapagos eventually, where he wants to sort of confront Darwin uh, in a, on his own territory, the source of Darwin's uh, insights. And Ag- Agassiz is, again, arguing against Darwin and coming up with all sorts of reasons why evolutionary pressures did not exist on the islands as Darwin had observed them. And Elizabeth says very quietly in one of her letters, maybe we shouldn't have spent so much time collecting. Maybe we should have thought more about what mm. we'd seen there. And what really happens in, 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 in her work um, is a is this gradual sort of inching away from Agassiz's authoritarianism. On the same expedition to the Galapagos Island, they also, islands, they also encounter the Fuegians, and Darwin had written some very unsavory things about them. And Elizabeth Agassiz looks at them and is is understanding of what they're trying to do. One of the Fuegians performs a song for them, and she recognizes that he's a poet of sorts, 
Uh, that's something would never have been available to uh, Louis Agassiz. Mm-hmm. And I find it quite poignant that after his death, she goes on to become a co-founder of Radcliffe College, uh, which is in one sense the culmination of the kind of education that Agassiz wanted to make available to everybody. Agassiz famously allowed women to be assistants in his museum. And when he uh, started the Anderson School of Natural History in the last year of his life, he admitted women, a sizable number of women, to that school. And Elizabeth takes a page from Agassiz's book and becomes involved in making quality education, college education, available to women in Cambridge. You know, we can be very appreciative of this. Margaret Fuller could not go to Harvard. Um, mm-hmm. She found a way of making Harvard instruction available to women through Radcliffe College. And in her tenure as the first president of Radcliffe College, we already see differences between her and Agassiz. She's a very unassuming presence as a president. Uh, there are stories about her scattering the diplomas at graduation, you know, being generally, um, you know, a little uh, not on the ball, as mm-hmm. Agassiz always was. And that made it possible for Radcliffe to become as successful as it, as it was during those years. She was not perceived as a threat by the Harvard establishment, but she did what she needed to do. And um, as a popular science writer, she, in her own books, uh, she really kind of gets rid of the voice of institutional authority, mm. as I like to call it, that was so characteristic of Agassiz. And she's replacing with someone who just wants to know and who's often left wondering. And that I see as a real achievement, as something yeah. that Agassiz inadvertently fostered. Right. Um, I think that you, you said too, um, Elizabeth felt uh, that we should spend more time thinking about the things we're collecting instead of just collecting and collecting and collecting. Thanks again, Christoph, for, for being with us. Uh, again, the book is Louis Agassiz, Creator of American Science. You've been listening to The Custom House. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Again, that was a program from The Vault, a 2013 conversation with Christoph Ermscher about his book, Louis Agassiz, creator of American science. I'm Doug Storm, your producer and host. For more interviews like this, go to wfhb.org news interchange. For more Custom House episodes, go to wfhb.org tch. Thanks for listening.